0: My name is Ted Cochrane. I was born in Grena Fossett, Killarney, and I now live in Baldoyle, Dublin. And my title is uh, Past International President 2003-2004.
1: So you grew up in Fossa, Ted. Tell me about that.
0: Well, I grew up near near Beauport Bridge, and... Uh, Lived in a small cottage with my grandparents, my mother and father and my younger brother, Sean, and my younger br- sister, Mary. And uh, then it all fell apart when my poor mother passed away when I was seven and she was just 30.
1: Oh, my God. I'm so sorry to hear that.
0: Yes. And uh, now my father's left with three small kids. with my grandmother, Bridget Griffin, and nan as we to call her, said I'll read the three of them and she did a great job.
1: What was that like? You know, you were so young and uh, your anyone's mother is such a big part of her life. It must have been hard.
0: I can remember being taken away in, in Michael Fleming's car to the hospital in Killarney and I can remember visiting her uh, on my first communion. My dad and myself went by bus to Cork and visit her in the Nought Infirmary. But that was... She went to hospital in March. First communion was in May. She passed away on August the 4th. And at, at the age of seven, your memory your memory loses loses out very quickly. So when she passed away, I wasn't that affected by it as far as I know, that she was gone, but I wasn't uh, grief-stricken.
1: I imagine as you got older, she became, you know, a big part of your life and is such that you wondered... What it would what would have been like if she was there?
0: Well, without a shadow of a doubt, uh, she, she would have been a big influence on me, but um, she wasn't there. My grandmother fulfilled the role, her mother, mm-hmm. and my grandmother was very interested in education, and uh, that's where my interest in reading came from, mm-hmm. from her, and particularly from her nephew, John Gearn, who had emigrated to Australia Age seventeen and a half, on the twenty-first of December, nineteen twenty-one, mm. never to come home again. Mm. But he would send a box of books every now and again, and I would read every book in the box. Oh,
1: lovely! And
0: then when I got to National School in Fossa, the Carnegie Library provided a box of books every term, I think, and I would read every book in that box as well. Oh
1: my
0: so, goodness! So I, I, I was very fond of reading. Yeah.
1: There's a lovely line in an article I was reading about you and it was that you recalled as a small child sitting on your grandfather's knee in front of an open fire where he would used to retell you stories from long ago. Describe that for me.
0: Well, we lived in a small cottage with two two bedrooms and a kitchen, no bathroom, no electricity, no running water, <laughs> no <an> open <laughs> fire to cook, and obviously uh, the only entertainment was storytelling. And my, and my grandfather, Jack Griffin, was was very good at it because, of course, he was born in 1885, so he grew up in the early 1900s. And the local men would drop in now and again and sit around the fire, and he'd regale them with stories about this, that, and the other, and about people and incidents and things that happened. And uh, I'd sit on his knee until I was put to bed, which I always <laughs> resisted.
1: <laughs> like any child.
0: But, <laughs> yes. But but that uh, kind of atmosphere of being together and listening to stories uh, probably had a big impact on me later on.
1: Mm -hmm. Tell me about your early twenties. Like, when did public speaking become a thing for you?
0: Oh, not until 1985. And it there was a reason. There was a contributing reason for my interest in it. In that. At that stage of my life, I was the chairman of the local residents' association, and we had a big dinner after Christmas in nineteen Christmas eighty four. So it was January eighty five, and we had about two hundred people. It was my first major event. Oh my goodness, right two hundred! About two hundred residents yeah, but between residents and partners, yeah.
1: Oh, it must have been very nerve wracking.
0: Well, it was, and Dr. Michael Woods, the minister for justice, was sitting on my right hand. And Nora Owen from Fine who succeeded him as Minister for Justice, was on my left hand. And it came to the time to start, and I stood up, and I said, Let's say grace together, in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And they all did that. And all I could think of, all I could think of, was bless me, Father, for I have sinned. (laughs) (laughs) And no no matter how hard I tried... I couldn't think of grace, even though I knew it quite well. So five seconds, ten seconds, fifteen seconds—they all start shuffling and looking around. What? What's keeping us? And never thinking that was I was keeping myself. So then I had a brainwave. I turned to Michael. Woods. I, said, "I put my hand over my mouth." I said, "Michael, Michael, Michael, how does grace start?" He said, <laughs> bless-, he said "Bless us, all, Lord, and these die Oh, bless us, all, Lord, and these die gifts. <laughs> <laughs> and I was away. And I said, oh, my God, that was awful. And then we move on to September, and I got an evening press that were in fashion at the time. And there was a letter in it from somebody I knew through my football connections, a man called Pierce Barrett. And he said uh, there's the new club start. the new Toastmasters club starting to in the Hollybrook Hotel, Lantarf, which is near Fairview. It was, is now a block of apartments. And it was 8 o'clock next Monday. Everybody invited. I said, I'd better go along to that and see what they do. But I won't get involved. I definitely Mm -hmm. won't get involved. So along I went. They had what they call a demonstration meeting with uh, people there and a few Toastmasters to to show them what's happening. And then when that ended, Pierce went off to the men's room for two minutes. And while he was away, this Toastmaster man, whom I have no recollection of who he was, approached me. He said, we're forming a committee... Will you do president? I said, OK. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I started, uh, Ted, September 1985.
1: Ted, for anyone that doesn't understand, what exactly is Toastmasters?
0: Well, people learn communication and leadership skills by practice. Simple as that. They get involved and they do speeches and they do feedback and they, they sit in committees and learn, learn leadership it's a it's a gradual learning process
1: mm-hmm. and it's for and anyone it works.
0: and it works it absolutely it works we have we have three three young people three young people in their early 20s in my club here the Fingal Toastmasters in Dublin and one of them got elected as vice president of her, of her college union on the strength of her speech another lady did a presentation at a corporate deal for her work and they were absolutely awestruck. The people who were there. And the third guy, oh, the same thing happened to him. He was called at short notice to give a presentation at a corporate day that he he works for. He was so efficient that his chief executive phoned him the next day, especially to thank him. Oh my goodness! So, yeah. So it's it's a big it's a big thing to have the ability to fashion your thoughts in a way that makes sense to the people who are listening to you.
1: It's amazing, and it's it's a skill for life, isn't it, that you're, you're taught? Well, it is. Things. it is. A
0: lot of people confuse talking with communicating, but it's not the same thing at all. George mm-hmm. uh, Bernard shaw said, the biggest problem with communication, he says, is the illusion that has taken place. And I have examples of that in my everyday life, listening to people giving presentations, and I'm as wise at the end as I am at the start. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because they are us. They're just with facts and figures and details that go in one ear and out the other because Mm -hmm. they don't have their thoughts organized in a structured way.
1: Mm -hmm. And that's it. I think it's having that practice as well of maybe even looking in the mirror and rehearsing that way and then ask yourself at the end, does this make sense to me? Because if it doesn't make sense to you, it's not going to make sense to the room.
0: Correct. And the organisation and structure for speech is the bedrock of every speech, how it's organised. And uh, if, you, if you care for an example, if you watch the six, six o'clock news on the television, then the, the newscaster will ask George Lee, well, George, what happened about climate change today in Brussels? And George will give a 20-second response, and then there'll be a question and another question and another question and another question. Why, why doesn't the newscaster say to George, tell us all you know about what happened in Brussels today? Mm-hmm. Because, because we'd find it very hard to take it in if he gave a five-minute report. But by breaking it up into five or six questions, we get the gist of it.
1: Exactly. It gives you time to process it as well.
0: Correct. Exactly. And that's why, that's why when I say to people, have you ever tried to read a book that hasn't any chapters? And they say, no. I said, would it be difficult? Oh, they said, it would be impossible. I said, but why? Well, what difference does the chapters make? Mm-hmm. Well, the chapters are, are uh, re- what's the word? They, they tell us there's a change in something here. We're moving from chapter one to two to three to four. We're changing. So it, uh, our eyes tell our brains there's a change here. But in a speech, you see, our ears have to do that. And the speaker has to organize his speech with chapters, if I may call them chapters, which are different parts of the speech, so the audience can follow and 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 understand as he or she goes on.
1: Interesting. Well, Ted, you also became international president president in 2003-2004. What was that like? You were also the first Irishman and European to do so.
0: I was, and I was the only one up to last just this August past when our new international president is a Scottish lady, Morag, who lives in Germany. So, so ninety-nine years went by, and I was still the only European. <laughs> it's, a, it's a difficult job to get because the votes are all in America, not America. But I had a wonderful team behind me, and we went over to Miami, and uh, and we won. and uh, uh, it was a great year, 2003, 2004. I did a lot of travelling and I experienced the rest of the world because that's what's expected of the international president. He or she visits other other districts and, and gives keynote speeches, etc., etc.
1: Did you find it so difficult it, at any point, you know, with all the travelling and expectations?
0: No, no, I didn't. I found it very exciting. And uh, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I really did.
1: Um mm-hmm. Okay, fantastic. And I love this, right? You, you, you're you an author yourself and you mm-hmm. wrote a number of books, but I love the title of one of your books, Hiring a Car and Walking After It. <laughs> and that actually comes from one of your grandmother's sayings. Tell me about
0: this. Absolutely. She was. She would say that very often. Oh, it's just like hiring a car and walking after it. It's been totally useless exercise. <laughs> you're wasting your time. That's like hiring a car and walking after it. And you know, my poor granny, didn't hire many cars in her life, but when she did, uh, she hired uh, Matt Cahill's car inside in High Street in Killarney, where he owned a pub, and I saw that his family are still there, the O'Connors, and uh, they still own a pub. And, oh, lovely. Uh, and uh, we, 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 we would hire, we, when we went to town in the Pony and Trap, we would put the Pony and Trap into the back of, of up the lane at cars and into their garage, but when Nan, we called her Nan, wanted something special, she'd hire caz 's car and he'd he'd drive out and drive her back in and and so on. So she didn't get in the car maybe three or four times a year, but 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 she had that saying which I thought was memorable. And of course, because I owe her so much for where I got to, I I I, I named the book in her in her honour.
1: Okay. And what was what was the book about?
0: It's fifty stories. Fifty stories about about my experiences in life and where I went and so on and so forth. Uh, I think I think my most, the one that people remember the most is, uh, very early on, it's What Will Be Your Legacy is the title. And uh, and it's a question, what will be your legacy? What will be my legacy? And it was inspired by the fact that I spent the 80s as station master in Houston Station. And uh, one day I was out I used to go for a walk every afternoon and talk to the staff and see things. So I was at Platform 5 at 3 o'clock. And uh, the train to Watford was to go at 5 past 3. And this elderly gentleman approached the gate and asked my my man, is this the train to Kilkenny? And the answer was yes. And he went and he walked about, I don't know, 20 metres and fell in a heap. And no matter what we could do, we couldn't revive him. He was taken by ambulance across the road to what was then Dr. Stevens Hospital and pronounced dead. So I found out who he was. I found out that the removal was the next day at four o'clock. And I said, I'd go across and I'd tell his relatives that what happened and how it happened and what we did to save him and to resuscitate and that it all failed. I said, if it were my relatives, they'd love to hear this. So over I went and the the undertaker was sitting in, a, in his hearse. I went in and said a few prayers in the mod tree. came out, and I noticed it was five, five to four. So I went over to the hearse. I said, are you Mr. So-and-so's uh, undertaker? He said, I am. I said, I thought it was leaving at four o'clock. He says, it is. But I said, I'm the only one here. He says, you are. There's nobody else. Oh. And at four o'clock, the coffin was taken out, put in the hearse. And I can still visualize it as it was yesterday. This was the mid 80s sun was shining, it was June, there was some gravel in the yard and they, it rolled out over the gravel, making that gravelly noise out on the St. John's Road and turned left for Kilkenny. And I said, oh my God, not one single person came to that poor man's funeral. And that inspired me to ask that question, what will be your legacy? That's,
1: so, that's a powerful story. It's Thank you. Half but very
0: powerful. Yeah. And, and and illuminating as well, in the sense that this was a well dressed man. He wasn't poor or impoverished or down and out. He was a well dressed man and well spoken because I was standing beside him as he asked the question, Is this the train to Kilkenny? Mm. So there was there was there was no reason why somebody couldn't come up and accompany his remains down to Kilkenny. And anyway I put that in the book and I have lots of other stories about that. Um, uh, in the book as well, and uh, it's uh, it's only ten euro,
1: <laughs> so it's <laughs> not an in book
0: And a lot of people love it, and they say I read a story every now and again because the, the stories are one or two pages, you see, mm. but they all have some information or some or some uh, some piece of advice. For example, one of them is about about. Um, uh, what was his name now? I can't think of it. He was the coach. He was the coach of the Green Bay Packers, and uh, and he had a saying. He 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 took the team. that were losers, and he made them into winners. And and uh, he had a saying which I loved. He says, "You'll be fired with enthusiasm, or you will be fired, comma, with enthusiasm." <laughs> 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 and I did a comma ever. Did a comma ever make so much
1: difference?
0: You will be fired with enthusiasm. Or you will be fired, comma, with enthusiasm.
1: <laughs> Ted, finally, I have one question for you that I think is important. What is your biggest advice for anyone in life going through anything in any part of life?
0: Well, I give, I give people three pieces of advice. And the very first one is always say yes to opportunity because you never know where it's going to take you. I said yes to opportunity that night in the Hollywood Hotel in 1985 by taking on that role. I had no idea how to do it, but look where it brought me. Mm. The second one is, is that um, never be afraid to ask for advice. Never be afraid to ask for advice. There are always people there willing to help you. And number three... And I think this is the really most important of all. Always, always, always believe you're as good as the next person. Mm. And when I got on the board first in 1996, I went to my first board meeting in, in South California in February 1997. And there were 23 people on the board, and they're all from North America. And I'm sitting there at this big, long table saying, what am I doing here? <laughs> what am I doing here? I, I'm representing the rest of the world outside America, and I had to convince myself I had the right to be there. I was elected to be there, and then I found I had opinions that mattered. Mm. So finally, before I go, then I just want to thank my father, Ned Cochran, who died uh, at seventy. He died. He died um, 1983. My grandmother, Bridget Griffin, Nan, and my grandfather. Jack Griffin, Granda for all they did for me to get me from where I started to where I ended up.
1: That's beautiful, Thank you so much.
0: Not a problem. Thank you any time.